You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by lead pastor Benjamin Emery. Great book, great movie if you've read the series. And if you know anything about C.S. Lewis, you would know he was a, a sound atheist for a long time, a very smart man, very intellectual. Uh, and then Christ saved him, and he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia um, and gave a lot of Christian reference. In fact, Aslan is the Jesus figure, the witch is the Antichrist or the Satan figure, and it just shows how in the last battle Christ will come onto the scene uh, in this in this period when it looks like evil is about to take over, he'll just reemerge, and that's what we're going to spend our time, the rest of our time today, talking about because it's quite an exciting uh, piece of scripture. So there's a lot of places. If you have your study guides, um, there's a lot of information in there that I don't have time to go through. I'm going to encourage you to read through those verses on your own, um, and if not, pick up a Bible. If you didn't have one on your seat, there's one in the seat behind you, and I'm going to tell you some different places to turn. So let's just pray. Uh, before we start. Well, Lord, it's going to be an amazing day someday. Uh, But here we are, Lord, living as Canadians in Gravenhurst in 2021. Um, We live very differently than most of the world lives, Lord. We realize we have so so many good things in our lives uh, that so many don't get to experience. And we want to be thankful for that, Lord, and we, we want to be effective, useful Christians. We want to be uh, loving uh, Christians and yet uh, those who stand by truth. And, Lord, that is a hard balance. It is so easy to go into the ditches uh, to the left and to the right. But we want to walk like you, Lord. Would you help us to uh, look to that glorious day when you'll come back, uh, when you will make things right, when you will defeat evil, but also to live in the present to live well for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it's going to be someday. Someday, Christ is going to return. Maybe it's in the not-too-distant future. We were talking about throughout this series. This is the seventh part in our series. If you've uh, missed any of them, you can make up for them. Get them on calvarygravenhurst.com. Uh, we are out of the study guides. We had ordered 150, but uh, they have all been um, claimed. And so you can get the study guide. It's right on our website if you um, want to catch up. But we are looking at this event um, Last week, we looked at the final battle. The week before that, we looked at the last seven years of the world called the tribulation. Before that, where the church would possibly be during that. Before that, the rise of the Antichrist. And before that, the signs of the times. And it's going to be a day. It hasn't happened in 2,000 years. Jesus is coming back. He will step foot on the earth 6,000 years ago, he stood uh, in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve and walked with them. 4,000 years ago, he stood uh, on the mountain overlooking Sodom and Gomorrah and talked with Abraham. 2,000 years ago, he came as the Lamb of God, uh, meek and mild, gentle, as a, uh, as a 
lowly, simple man, God's son, to give himself uh, for any sinner, anyone, any human being who would come to faith in him to be forgiven and washed clean. That's my story. Filthy person with all sorts of sins that I justified, yet empty inside. And I met Jesus Christ reading his words overseas in a, in a place that would seem like a God-forsaken country, in the dirt, in the mire, surrounded by emptiness and misery. And Jesus Christ came into my life and started to change me, not only save me, but change me. And that is what he came to do his first time. But he's coming back again the second time. And it will be in the midst of this great battle. When the forces of evil look as if they are going to be victorious. Zechariah tells us in verse, chapter 14 verses 1 and 2 that the enemies of the Antichrist will be winning. In fact, they will capture the city of Jerusalem and evil men and women will do what evil men and women do. Probably very similar to what they're doing in cities all throughout Afghanistan right now. You can read that in the first two verses um, for yourself. The Jews will be beaten, they will be hopeless, and then they will cry out for help. And then the trumpet will sound in the deep one last time. And all those who are looting and pillaging will quake with fear. They will lose their courage. It's a, another good scene um, is if you've read the books or watched the movies, The Lord of the Rings, uh, written by uh, J.K. Token, J.L. Token. And he was, a, again, a non-believer, grew up same period as Lewis, and the fact he was an intellectual friend of Lewis's, um, and he came to faith. And he wrote the Lord of the Rings series, and he gave lots of biblical references, lots of biblical characters. And in fact, the second book, The Two Towers, when uh, they are surrounded um, in Helm's Deep by the forces of evil, and they are overrun and outnumbered, that is a picture of this final battle that will take place someday that Tolkien is giving us. And, and just as things seem like there's no hope, and they're, they're in the keep, and they're, they're completely surrounded, most of their army is wiped out. Aragorn, the hero, remembers a promise, a promise that was made by Gandalf, who Tolkien made as a heavenly uh, angel. There was three of them that were sent by God to the earth to help guide the men of Middle-earth as they fought against Saruman, who is the type of the beast, just as the queen was in the Chronicles of Narnia. And he remembers this. Gandalf says, Look to my coming on the first light of the fifth day at the dawn Look to the east. And then they ride out and they blow the horn and Gandalf appears leading the army and they defeat the enemy. The Bible says it will look that desperate and then Christ will appear. If you have your study, guys, you can turn uh, to chapter 7. If you don't, turn to Revelation chapter 19 and we get a picture of Jesus the Jesus in the second coming, it's a little bit different of a picture than Jesus in the first coming. That's page 1102 in the church Bible, the pew Bible, Revelation 19, verses 11 to 21. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse, and its rider was called Faithful and True. 
Let's pause there for a second. Faithful and true. See, in a world where it's easy to make promises, we're, we're getting ready for the election, right? And we're going to watch a, a bunch of people get up and make promises. And we know very well that they're not going to, they have not much intent on following through on a lot of those promises, right? They won't be faithful to a lot of those things. It's just to get you to vote. Whoever's going to give away the most stuff will get the most votes. But not Jesus Christ. He is faithful faithful and true. In fact, he is going to fulfill all the promises he's made. Did you know that? There's, there's sometimes, we as Christians and sometimes non-believers as well, they think God, they're angry at God because they think he made a lot of promises that he didn't in fact make. And so when he doesn't do what they uh, want him to do, even though he didn't say he would do it, they get angry. But did you know that Jesus Christ made a lot of promises to us? And that he will be faithful to every single one of those promises. He's faithful, but he's true. In a world where truth is relative, and that means that anyone can decide what is truth. In fact, there is no ultimate truth. It's what's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. What's good over there is good over there, and and so on and so forth. That is the world in which we live. But Jesus is true, meaning he is the definer of truth. He is truth in of self, its essence. That is who is coming. And then it says, and with justice he judges. And now a judge's job in our country, a judge is uh, put in place by the government, uh, elect, put in position by the government. And the judge's job is to be a neutral party. They are to uphold the laws of the land. They are not to look to protect one group over another, but they are simply to look at the laws of the land and make sure that they are being followed. If the government gets out of hand, it is the judge's job to bring the government back in hand. If the citizens get out of hand, it is the judge's job to make sure that they are held accountable. And I know this doesn't always happen in our land. People, governments, uh, usurp the law. And I know that the victims don't always get the justice that they deserve. Sometimes victims remain victims and no justice is given. But there is a judge who is the perfect judge, who will judge not according to the standard of a nation or the standard of a person, but according to his standard. And he's a good and righteous judge. I've given this example before, but uh, it's, it's good for understanding who God is. So imagine a person, and you might say, I don't agree with God's laws. And in fact, uh, I've done a lot of good things. Well, those are two good cases. I don't agree, and I've done a lot of good things, and therefore I should be let off. But imagine somebody came from another country to this land, Canada. Every nation has its own laws. And, and they decided, you know, when I lived in the Middle East, there's no speed limits in the Middle East. You can drive however you want. And it's really like who has got the most gusto uh, can shove their way and push their way in. But imagine they came here and they, they got in a car and they drove around and, and they accidentally clipped a couple of kids going through uh, the school area. And, and the judge, the police brought them before the judge and the judge uh, said, well, you've broken the laws. And they said, well, I don't agree with your laws. In fact, the country I've come from uh, doesn't have these laws and therefore... I don't agree with them. Or they say, you know, I've done a lot of good things in my life, and therefore my good things uh, should, be, should outweigh this thing. Let me ask you, and you can either go like this or like this as an answer. But do you think if the judge is good, he is going to allow that person off because they don't agree with them, 
or because they've done good things? No, no. Most of you are shaking your head no. You're right, he's a good judge. And therefore, he won't look at position. He won't look at things done. He won't look at whether you agree. He will act according to the law, his laws. It says he'll make war. And this is hard for us to to think about a Jesus that makes war. And his eyes were like a fiery flame. And he had many crowns on his head. The first coming of Jesus, Isaiah tells us, uh, that Jesus came meek and mild, that he, there was nothing special about him, that he was despised by men, meaning they looked at him and said, I want nothing to do with you. But at his second coming, he will come as king. He will come as warrior. He will come uh, not to make peace as he did the first time. He will come and be a terrifying thing to those who have rejected him. He will absolutely be terrifying. But to those who yearn for his appearing, he will be the most wonderful thing that has ever been seen. The crowns on his head signify his authority. He has many crowns on his head. Uh, Because in order to enforce something, you have to have authority, right? And, and, And he has all the authority. Because he's creator, sustainer, And he is king. And therefore, he doesn't need to ask anyone's permission. He doesn't need to go to a government. He will come with all authority. And then it says, and this is again an image of Jesus that John the Apostle is giving us. John, who wrote the Gospel of John, that talked about love so much. The same John. He had a name written on it that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. Isaiah, in Isaiah 63, talks about this time, um, this time when Jesus will come. He talked about Jesus, the first coming in in the earlier chapters of Isaiah, and then he talks about him this. And, And you might say, is this the blood that Jesus had from dying for the sins of the world? Isaiah 63, verse 2, says, Why is your apparel red? And your garments like those who tread in the wine press. That's speaking of a wine press in the first century uh, when you had to stomp on the wines. You got in it and stomped on the wines and your, your clothing would get covered in red like the wine press. Verse 3 answers the question, I have trodden the wine press alone, and from the peoples there was no one with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained my apparel. I've seen some pretty horrible things in my life, things I wish I had never seen, but I've never seen anything like this in all of war. Yes, we got blood on us, but never covered like this is giving. And this is hard for us to understand that Jesus would be a Jesus of justice and anger and yet peace and love. He is both. And we often forget that. We, we tend to want to lean one way or the other. Jesus is this all-loving sort of God who just is good with everything and cool with everything, or he's this angry God who is just waiting to wipe people off the face of the earth. But it is neither of those, and it is both of those. He is loving, patient, kind, more than any other human, and yet he is just and he will follow through on punishment more than any of us would do. 
His first coming, he was the Lamb of God who shed his blood for the sins of the world. His second coming, he is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And he will devour and roar at his enemies. It says the armies uh, followed on a white horse, or followed on white horses, wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. What does this mean, the sharp sword? Well, we interpret scripture by scripture. And so Ephesians 6, 7, 17 tells us that the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. That it has power. In, in Ephesians, or sorry, uh, Hebrews 4 verse 12 says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-double-edged sword. It pierces even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And he will come speaking the words of power. The words that will to some strike conviction and to some, give great hope. And he will rule them with an iron rod, it says. This speaks of the thousand-year millennial reign, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. And he will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is greater than any king that has ever existed. He is greater than any false god that has ever been made by the hands and minds of humans. He will come with more royalty, with more glory than any king has ever ridden in. He will come from heaven, it tells us. And then Jesus, in Matthew 24, you can turn there if you want. It's page 880 in the church Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, we want you to take that Bible that you're holding in your hands as our gift. Take it and use it and mark it up and... And do whatever with it. Matthew 24, uh, verses 29 to 31. Jesus says, Immediately after the days, the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not shed its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the celestial powers will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the peoples on the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds from heaven and the power with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather his elect from the four winds of the earth, from one end of the sky to the other. He's coming as rescuer to those Christians who are still alive at this point. And we talked about that where the Christians, these Christians, who they could be. But you have to refer back to that sermon. But I want to just stop there for a minute. And I want to ask you a question, something for you to ponder. That day of rescue is coming physically someday. But everyone in here, doesn't matter your age, doesn't matter your social status or your background, every one of us is struggling with things. None of us are perfect. Some of us are in chains. Some of us are controlled by things. Everyone needs to be rescued. Yes, 
First, everyone needs to be rescued from the power uh, of sin and, 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 and the penalty of sin. That's called salvation and sanctification, that God wants to save anyone from their sin. If you don't believe that you've sinned, well, then you don't really need Christ. And if you don't believe that God is actually a God who, who will uphold his justice, then again, you don't need him. But if you see that you're a sinner, a flawed person, a broken person, then you can receive salvation. But not only that, it's called, the next step is he promises is sanctification. Meaning that the evidence, and James talks about this, of an actual born-again Christian, not a religious person, is that there will be a desire, because God will come to live inside of you, to be changed into his image. That you'll want to love God more and you'll want to love other people as yourself. That is the sanctification. We all need that. But even Christians who receive that can still live in bondage and chains. Some Christians need to be rescued from anxiety and fear. Anxiety and fear. Oh, it's so in our faces today, isn't it? Like I'm sure everyone in here knows somebody that is just totally controlled by anxiety and fear, right? It is the theme of our culture. It cripples us. It disables us. It steals uh, joy from our lives. Only Jesus can rescue us from fear and anxiety. Medication sometimes can help. Talking to a counselor can sometimes help. But really, the only one with the answer for the fear and anxiety that cripples our society is Jesus Christ. In fact, he says in Matthew 6 that he has the cure for anxiety and fear. Dr. E. Stanley Jones, a doctor and preacher, said this, the in, we, I am inwardly fashioned for faith, not for fear. Faith is not my native land. Faith is. Or sorry, fear is not my native land. Faith is. I am so made that worry and anxiety are like sand in the machinery of my life. Faith is like the oil. I live better by faith and confidence than by fear, doubt, and anxiety. In anxiety and worry, my being is constantly grasping for breath. These are not my native air. But in faith and in confidence, I breathe freely. These are my native air. And a John Hopkins uh, University doctor says this, We do not know why it is that warriors die sooner than others, sooner than non-warriors, but it is a medical fact. But I, who am simple in mind, think I know. We were inwardly constructed in nerve and in tissue, in brain and in soul. For faith is not for fear. God made us this way. To live by worry is not to live by the reality of how we were made. Is that you? Do you live by anxiety and fear? This isn't the way that God designed you to live. And it's not going to be an easy struggle, but he can bring you relief. Some Christians need to be rescued from purposeless lives and from never-ending excuses. I can't, I can't, I can't. But Jesus says in Mark 9.23, all things are possible through those who believe in him. 
Some of us need to be rescued from pride, some from unforgiveness, some from the love of money, some from the fear of man, some from selfishness, some from dependence on others, so on and so forth. But what is it for you? What is the thing that traps you? The question is, do you want to live like this all your life? There is a rescuer who can rescue from you from these chains. Jesus is willing. And if you need someone to walk through that with you, we at the church, there are some people here who are very caring, and if you contact us, they would love to walk with you and pray with you. Like I'm not talking about if you're a person who just wants to come and blame everything on everyone else, because that doesn't lead anywhere. But if you're a person who, who wants to, to change and to see God inter- intervene in your lives and have people walk through, we want to do that with you. So please contact us, and we will confidentially do that. Turn to Zechariah chapter 14. That's page 848. Now the prophet of old gives us another scene in this event. Page 848 in the church Bible. Zechariah 14, verse 3. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on the day of battle. On the day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives will be split in half from the east to the west, forming a huge valley, so that half of the mountain will move to the north and half to the south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for a valley of mountains will extend to Azal. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of King Uzziah of Judah. The Lord my God will come with all his holy ones with him. If you'll look at the picture, that is a picture of modern-day Israel. You can see the uh, wall, and in front of the wall, you'll see this hill, um, and all of those little things are tombs. And you might say, well, why are there 150,000 tombs on the Mount of Olives? That is the Mount of Olives. Well, there's a reason, because uh, people read these verses and realized that the first place Jesus would touch down when he came back a second time was on the Mount of Olives. And they knew, they read the scriptures that said, uh, when Jesus comes back, the dead will be resurrected, and they wanted a first-class ticket to that event. They wanted to be the first to rise from the grave, and so they paid uh, money to have this over the last 2,000 years to have their place. It says on that day, verse 6, there will be no more light. The sunshine and the moonlight will diminish. It will be a unique day known only to the Lord without day or night, but there will be light at the evening. You don't have to turn there, but you can if you want. Matthew 17, uh, verses 1 to 8, tells us of something called the transfiguration. You may have heard of that. Uh, That is um, the event where Jesus took Matthew, James and John, or sorry, Peter, James and John, up on the mountain, alone from everyone else. And they saw him, it says, that his face shone with such a brightness, and God spoke over him and said, this is my uh, son, and, and, and then he was with uh, Moses and Elijah. And, and what happened there, the transfiguration simply means transformation, it's the same meaning. 
is that they saw Jesus in a way that no one had seen him, in his heavenly form. Why will there be no sun and no moons, but yet light? Because Jesus will be there in his heavenly form. That's why he said, I am the light of the world, and I have come to bring light into the darkness. And it says on verse 8 of Zechariah, On the day living waters will flow from Jerusalem, half of it towards the eastern sea, the other half towards the western sea, in summer and winter alike. If we can go to the map overhead. You'll see there, you can see Jerusalem. We've circled it in the middle, uh, the city of Jerusalem. And you can see it's built on mountaintops. If you've been to Israel, then uh, you would know this. It's quite amazing. And, and to the west is the Mediterranean Sea. And to the east is the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea. Well, why is it called the Dead Sea? Well, it got its name for a reason, because it's dead. It's quite a unique place to the world. It's, it's pretty amazing. The Dead Sea earned its name because nothing can live in it. The salt level is so high in the Dead Sea that, that any life dies immediately. Swimmers can literally float on it. I've done this. I've uh, floated on it. Can we go to the next slide? You can just float because it's so dense with salt. You don't need to swim. And I unfortunately forgot that, turned around, stuck my head in it, and I thought somebody threw acid in my eyes. So I'm running out blind <laughs> trying to find the showers. But it's a unique place. The Dead Sea is the lowest point in the world, the lowest uh, um, earthly, or sorry, land place in the world. It is 430 meters below sea level. So think of this. In the most contested nation in history, in the most contested city in history, there is a sea that is the most unique, one of the most unique seas in the world. And at that sea is the lowest point in the world. Now, why is that important? And how do we know where he's talking about it? Well, one, we know of it because there's the only sea to the east of Israel. But if you turn to Ezekiel 47, that's verses, or chapter, page 780 in the church Bible, Ezekiel 47, Ezekiel the prophet uh, tells us about this event, tells us a little more detail. It's amazing. We have historical copies of the Old Testament. These guys didn't live together. They weren't bros. Um, and yet they spoke of the same event at different times. He said to me, the water, and you've got to read the whole chapter in context. You can do that on your own. The water flows out of the eastern region and goes down to Abraha. When, the sea, when it enters the sea, the sea of foul water, i.e. the Dead Sea, the water of the sea becomes fresh. Every kind of living creature that swarms will live wherever the river flows, and there will be a huge number of fish because the water goes there. Since the water has become fresh, there will be life everywhere it goes. This is a pretty amazing thing. Jesus will come back and reclaim the city and do away with evil. And living water. Where do we hear living water? Do we hear any of that in the New Testament? Do we hear Jesus say, I am the living water. Drink me and I will overflow in you. And then he says that when he comes back, he will bring life to a dead world. Not only a dead world, but a dead sea. See, the power of Christ is this. That he comes to make what was dead alive. 
That was me, a dead heart. And yet he brought my heart to life. And that is what he will do on that day to the dead sea. He will bring life, abundant life through it. Then Zechariah chapter, or verse 9 says, On the day the Lord will become king over the whole earth. The Lord alone and his name. That leads me to a question to ask you. Who is your king? Who is your king? Because he's coming to reclaim and he will be the, take it by force. He will not ask anyone's permission. But he wants to be your king now through peace through love, by him adopting you into his royal family. And so those who submit themselves to him now become his part of his royal family. But later he comes back as conquering king. So who is your king? I have a lot of different kings. I was my own king. Satan was my king. Other people I worshipped as king. Who's your king? You know, you can often tell who a person's ultimate authority is, two, by the way they live their life. What you do with your body, what you do with your money, what you do with your mouth, what you do with your ambitions, with your relationships, with your mind, with your heart. That's usually an indicator of who is in control of your life. And that's a pressing question that you need to answer for yourself. He will forgive our sins He will make peace with us now. But someday that offer of peace will be taken back. And he will come to take it by force. Then we get into the period, and I don't have long to go through it. I've given you a lot of references in the study guide for you to go and read that talks about this thousand-year reign. Just read one. uh, Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 4. That's page 1102 in the church Bible. says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss and the great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, put a seal on it, and then so he could no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. The Bible speaks of this thousand-year reign, and, and not all Christians would believe this is a literal thousand-year reign. I've, on page 19 of the study guide, I, and I, in this chapter, I lay out some of the different beliefs. The bulk of people would believe it is a thousand-year literal reign, that before heaven and earth come to, before heaven comes to earth, Jesus will actually be in charge of the world. That's what the Bible speaks of. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 2 and 3, and Revelation 19, verses 4 and 5, indicate that Christians will rule with him, meaning they will do jobs for him. They will um, be in charge of non-believers. That's what it says. And you might be wondering, well... How will Jesus decide who gets what position? Is it like the world? Is it based off your skill or your experience or your looks or how many people you have following you on social media? Like who gets the jobs? Ponder this in closing. That our faithfulness in the now demonstrates our trustworthiness for the future. Let me say that again. 
Your faithfulness in the now, the present, your present circumstances, demonstrates your trustworthiness for the future events, not only in your life, but in this millennial reign. I think the Bible would paint a clear picture of that. Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. You know it. I don't have time to read it. The master gives three people a coin, and he says, go and work. That's The coin is representation of our time, talents, and treasures. One guy makes it into ten, right? And Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. Now I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Next guy comes. He's taken it, and I think it's three or six. Not as many as the first guy, but again, he gets the exact same response. It's not, oh, you're pretty good, but not as good as that guy. No, it's, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful for a little, and I will set you over much. The last person, you know, doesn't do anything. They waste their life. It's all about themselves. It's all about living in, in, in the present, in the fear, and they're just, they're just, sorry, I didn't really do much with my life, and you know it doesn't work out too well for that person. That seems to be what Jesus said to the prostitute in Mark chapter 14, verses 8 and 9. The prostitute, who was about equal with the tax collector in everyone's eyes, like the lowest of low in society, she came and she sold what she had, and she had some perfect, or she had some perfume, which was expensive. It was probably the only valuable thing she had, and she came and anointed Jesus with it. it means covered him in it, a great honor, something only kings would get in those days. And you know, Judas gripes about, oh, you could have sold that and, and given the money to the poor, and other people are upset. And Jesus says, get this, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body forehand for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. She has done what she could. Not what everyone else did, but what she could. This is the same in the parable of um, when Jesus is standing in the temple and there's the rich man giving lots of money into the, the offering box and there's the widow who gives all she has, right? And what does Jesus say? Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put more in than all those others contributing in the offering box. For they contribute out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in everything she had. And Jesus in Matthew 18 says, those who are the greatest among you take the lowest position. What I'm saying is, God wants us to be, to live, to focus, um, and live well in our present circumstances. You may never be rich. You may never be famous. But you can be faithful in your current circumstances in your relationships, in your job, in your marriage, with your finances, with your body, faithful. And God will be proud of you. I think in the millennial, there'll be some fancy-dancy private jet-flying pastors who will think they're going to get the best position, and they'll be like cleaning the toilets in the new millennial. And there will be the faithful uh, woman who came and, and served in the children's ministry year after year, who looked after and loved and nurtured those little children and, and put up with the overbearing, ungrateful parents who would come and complain. And she greeted them with a smile every week. And she did that. And Jesus will say, you're in charge of a whole city. 
So are you being faithful in your present circumstances? That's the question that I want to leave us with. It's going to be a day. It's coming someday, and it's going to be amazing, and it's going to be awesome, and it's going to be glorious. Let's pray. As we get ready for communion, Alyssa is going to lead us in a song. Lord, thank you so much for the hope, the hope in the future, but also hope in the present. Lord, I pray for any in here who have not come to faith in you, who have not put their, their trust in you, who have not received you for the forgiveness of sins. I pray for my brothers and sisters uh, who are stuck in something, in some sort of chains, in a prison. Lord, that they would reach out and that you would help them, that you would release them, that they would not try and walk this alone. Lord, thank you that as flawed as I am, you have not given up on me and you will not give up on any in here who just do their best to follow and love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.